Well, I want to welcome you today to the final episode, the grand finale of Blood, Sweat, and Tears. We're so glad that you're with us. Welcome all of you who are joining us online. We've been in a four-part series looking at what happens when a man truly understands the kind of man that God has created him to become, a man of integrity, of passion, of honesty, of humility, that a man has the power to influence families, to influence the community, to influence workplaces, and ultimately to influence the entire world. And we've been drilling down into how to live that way is men. Now, I just want to make one final comment about the ladies before we move on. I know that this, some of you ladies, you've like, you've loved this series. Some of you endured it. I just want to say we love the ladies at South Bay Church. We have some phenomenal women of God at this church that love Jesus, that are investing in their families, that are leading the way in their places of work. And so we want to honor you and thank you for all that you do as the ladies of South Bay, and just say, maybe maybe we'll have some big series for you in the future as well, and Stacy can teach that one. So uh, today as we wrap up, we're continuing looking at the life of King David from the Old Testament of the Bible. What we see in this man who there's more written about him than any other character aside from Jesus, we see a man who had great successes and tremendous failures. We've learned, we've gleaned lessons from both his successes and his failures. And today as we wrap up, I want us to look at one last story, one finale of his life. And in fact, this last story has both failure and success in it. It shows us that our failures don't have to define us, that the mistakes that we make don't have to be the end of our lives. And we see David make a great mistake, and then he turns at the end of the story, and there's this beautiful finish that we're going to see all around this idea of counting the cost of our choices. And my goal for our time together today is that we simply would learn to take into account the significance, the power of our choices to influence those around us, that there is a ripple effect from our lives that has the power to influence literally thousands of people around us. Today, we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 24. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn there as we look at one of the last stories, a historical account from the life of King David. The verse begins in chapter 24, number one, and says, the anger of the Lord burned again against Israel, and he incited David against them to go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Now, what's ironic about this story is it says that God is frustrated or angry with Israel again. Those of you who are parents, have you ever been frustrated again with your children? You know those moments where you, you, you tell your child to take their laundry upstairs or to make their bed or to stop beating their brother? I can neither confirm nor deny whether or not that's ever happened in our family. But, but you say the same thing over and over and over again. Well, eventually, if you keep saying the same thing over and over and over again and there's no intervention, there's no consequence, it'll keep getting worse over the course of time. So God is growing frustrated with his people because they've been disobedient, because pride and arrogance has grown. And so he wants David to do a census, and he's trying to teach a lesson not just to Israel, but to David as well. And God wants David to go out and take a census of the entire land from top to bottom, of animals, of people, of the warriors in, in the land. And what we understand historically from a census is that a census would signify ownership. That's why the Roman government would take a census of all of the different groups of people that they oversaw. There was this sense in which they wanted people to know that they were in charge. And I think a part of what God is doing in the story is trying to help David understand 
that influence, that leadership is a stewardship. It's a gift that has been given to him by God. And maybe in doing this census, David will wake up and he'll realize the impact of his choices. He'll realize that God has called him to lead these great people with integrity, with faithfulness, with purity. But David, instead of obeying God fully, obeys God partially. Now, I wonder if you've ever done that. I've done it a few times in my life. You're given a commission from God. There's something that he asks us to do, and we just kind of put our toe in the water. David puts his toe in the water, and instead of counting the entire land, instead of counting God's people, David counts his army. In verse number two, it says that he goes to Joab, the army commanders who were with him, and said this, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, which means top to bottom, and enroll all of the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. So in essence, God asked David to get on the scale, and instead of getting on the scale, David rolls up his sleeves to show the size of his biceps. In essence, David has grown in such pride and arrogance that he's flexing his army muscle. Because from the story, David's defeated all of his nemesis. He's powerful. He's mighty. There's nobody that can take him at this point. And one last story, one grand finale with his kingship is he's going to count his army and prove just how powerful and how mighty he is. And God, right before David's about to jump off of a cliff, right before David's about to do something stupid, a guy by the name of Joab intervenes. Joab, we've seen all throughout the life of David, as one of his top commanders in chief, comes in and listen to what he says to David. But Joab replied to the king, may the Lord your God multiply the troops 100 times over and may the eyes of my Lord the king, my, my Lord, the king see it. In essence, he's saying, I, I want to I want you to be blessed. I want your kingdom to grow. But why does my Lord the king want to do such a thing? Joab is trying to stand in the way of David doing something foolish. He's trying to get David to check his motivation before he jumps off the cliff. And you know, God has a tendency of graciously placing people into our lives who can call us to account. Who, who can call us up, up to a higher standard of living. Right before you, you make that decision to go out with that guy or date that gal or take that job, haven't you noticed sometimes that there will be somebody in your life that will offer you wisdom, that will offer you counsel, and what happens when you and I receive counsel makes all the difference whether or not we step into who God has created us to become. And so Joab comes and he says, David, don't do it. Don't flex your muscles. Don't, don't become so prideful, so arrogant that you forget that your leadership is stewardship. But instead of listening to Joab, listen to what it says next. It says, the king's word, however, overruled Joab. He's in charge. He's the one whose word is final. And it says, because his word overruled Joab, not because that the king was right, not because he had the truth, but because he was the king, because he was in power, he overruled Joab and the army's commander. So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. And David thought that because he ruled over Joab, he could overrule the truth, that he no longer had to listen because he was in charge. He had gotten so arrogant He'd become so prideful. He'd become so convinced that his 
stuff doesn't stink, that he sent Joab out to count the fighting men to flex his arm. Instead of counting God's people, he counts his army. And the first lesson I want us to see from this story for our lives and the ripple effect that we can have on others is that we have to stay accountable for our motivation. If you're taking notes, I'd like to ask you to write that down, to stay accountable for our motivation. Joab is saying to David, I want you to check yourself. I want you to check your heart before we do this. Proverbs 4, 23 says, above all else, guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life. And everything that we do flows from it. Everything in our lives flows from our hearts. Motivation really does matter. What's on the inside ultimately impacts what's on the outside. The choices that we make flow from inside of us. And God wants us to be in relationships with people who can call us to account, who can bring us to a realization of the blind spots that we have that that everybody else sees, but we don't see ourselves. When I was in middle school back in Livonia, Michigan, in Frost Middle School, um, I was the butt end of a lot of jokes. In fact, I was made fun of by a lot of my classmates. Several of my names they called me were like Chunky, Krusty, Fatty McGee, and the list goes on. And um, I, I had a complex, so I thought, you know, I need to get some good clothes to make me feel better about myself. So what did I get? I got some silk shirts. Anybody in the late 80s and 90s wear silk shirts? Just raise your hand. Moment of honesty. It's okay. Just look around. Those of you online, you can raise your hand to, you, you know, that was my, my cover-up. Hopefully kids would think I was cool, so I got a, a bright red one and a bright green one. And on one occasion, I was doing a presentation in class, and so that day I got all dressed up. I wore my green silk shirt to class, and here I am about to go into the class to give the presentation. I've got kind of this fear of always having to use the bathroom before I do anything important. So I like go to the bathroom last minute and I walk into the classroom and within a few minutes, I'm up in front of the class giving my presentation. Well, all of a sudden I I start to get this sense that everybody knows something I don't know. Have you ever had that happen before where people and about half the class is whispering and then the whisper turns into laughter and I don't think they're laughing at me because I'm not telling any jokes at this point, but you know, about two thirds of the people in the class are laughing at me. Well, I have no idea what's going on. I'm just going through my presentation. This is, this is a part of the reason why I'm, I'm always like conscious when I walk on stage, I'm checking my collar and trying to figure out because what happened next was when I'm walking back to my desk, this long silk shirt that goes all the way down to about here, I've tucked it in. But unfortunately, when I've tucked it in, a part of it got stuck. Where did it get stuck? In my zipper. Not only did it get stuck, but it started to point out like that. And so I had this little thing that was green, bright green, sticking out from my black pants about that, that much. Can you say that in church? I don't know. But it was bad. And everybody was making fun of me. It was something everybody saw that I did not see myself. And we all have areas of our lives like this, don't we? We have, we have areas of our lives that are blind spots. See, I want the friend who's going to say it to me before I go up in front of the class, right? I don't want the friend that's going to mock me and make fun of me when I'm in front of the class. I want somebody who's going to call me to account before the impact on my life. And God puts Joab there for David to call him to account to check his motivation. Who is there in your life who holds you accountable? Is there anybody in your life right now that has the authority and the freedom to ask you difficult questions? To call you to check your motivation? 
See, our human tendency, especially for guys, is to call people around ourselves that see it the same way that we see it, that have the same struggles that we have. And what I've seen over and over and over again in my life is that a man without accountability is a dangerous man. A man without people who can ask him the difficult questions is what my dad used to say to me when I was in, uh, growing up. He would say, is cruising for a bruising. Right before I would do something stupid, my dad would say, Andy, you're cruising for a bruising. And then I'd keep doing it. And then I'd hear him pull that belt out and it would go, the leather belt all the way through. And then you'd hear him snap it right before he's about to pop me. And that phrase got bra- like blazed into my mind, cruising for a bruising. But what I've seen in my life and I've seen in countless others is that a man without accountability is dangerous. He's cruising for a bruising. And, and the struggle for us is that we want people who don't ask us difficult questions, see it the same way. And consequently, we spiral rather than going forward towards a life that God has created us to live. A couple of things I've seen in my own life is when I'm struggling, I want to hide. When I'm struggling, I don't want to be around people who are going to call me to a higher level of living. I remember in college, there was this one season where I continued to struggle with sexual sin and I would avoid the people that I knew who would ask me the difficult questions. And what is important for us is to find people who are one to two steps ahead of us in the journey that can call us forward, that can call us up. Most of us men, our, our tendency is to find people who struggle with the same areas that we struggle with and let ourselves be encouraged that we both struggle with the exact same thing. You know, there's a reason why when you want to get in shape, you don't go to your friend who eats four pizzas a week and sits in front of the video game for hours on end and ask him to hold you accountable to getting into shape. You hire a trainer, you get around somebody who's in better shape because one to two steps ahead can encourage us and can be a catalyst to a better life, to the life that God has created us to live. And my question again is, who is that person in your life? If you don't have that person, would you let us as a church help you, as a community, as a group of people together, we can support, we can encourage one another. That's why we do life groups. That's why once a month at the end of the month, we have a group called Men's Base Camp that meets at the North San Jose campus on Thursday evenings, the last Thursday of the month. It's a group of guys just trying to do life in a better way. They get together to support and encourage one another. There are so many men, there are so many people here at South Bay who's walked through the struggles that every one of us are facing, who've come out triumphantly, who want to give their strength and their help to us. And we have to bring ourselves into the light, into community so that we can grow into who God has created us to be. David ignores it. David avoids the accountability and he overrules the word of Joab. And as the story continues, finally what we see happen is that David gets to this point where he was conscious stricken. It says that after he had counted the fighting men, he said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. But I want us to notice from the story is David is not really repentant. David doesn't want to change. He's just sorry that he got caught. At this moment, there's no sign of him coming to God saying, I want, to, I want to do it differently. I want to make it right. I want to make amends. He's just sorry he's gotten caught. And there's a difference between being sorry you've been caught and actually wanting to change. My two boys, Cademan and Sammy, 
You, you know, sometimes they get caught in the act of things that they should not be doing. I had this time a couple weeks ago where, you know, as a dad, if you don't have kids yet, one day this will totally make sense. If you, if you have boys, it will make more sense if you have kids. But I, I remember there's this afternoon and it's really quiet. And if you have boys and it's quiet for a long period of time, something's wrong. And I just started to feel the hairs on the back of my neck start to stand up a little bit. Like the sixth sense, something is not right. So I, I find out that they're downstairs and I kind of tiptoe down because I want to catch them in the act. And I come around the corner. I can't even remember what they were doing. I just remembered this response. Both of them dropped what was in their hands, looked up at me simultaneously and both said at the exact same time with me saying nothing at all. Both of them looked up and said, nothing. <laughs> I'm like, I didn't even ask you anything. What do you say nothing for? They were sorry that they got caught. I think I've done that to God a few times in my life. I'm like, nothing. And there's a difference between being sorry that we got caught and actually being willing to change. And sometimes it's not until there's a consequence, until there are ramifications that we actually are willing to change. And so God shows up and he gives David a choice of three consequences. He says, one consequence that you can endure is that you can have three years of famine the other is that you can have three months of war, or the third one is that you can have three days of plague. David, you pick your choice. It's your choice. And so David says, I'd rather fall into the hands of God than to fall into the hands of men. And in verse number 15, it says, so the Lord sent a plague on Israel. And from that morning until the end of the de time designated, 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. 70,000 of the people who David was supposed to count died because of one choice. And it seems like such an extreme consequence, doesn't it? It seems like God is so horrific in his anger, this violent, frustrated God just killing people randomly. But what I see when I look at the story is I see something entirely different. I believe that David... What we can see through the story had become so prideful. He'd become so arrogant about his leadership. And now we know from the story that he has 1.3 million soldiers at his fingertips to do whatever he wants, to serve his agenda. He's not even listening to his commander-in-chief. He's become so prideful that nobody's word is impacting him. And he's about to go off a cliff that is even worse than the story that we see right here. You can see over and over and over again throughout human history what happens with a man who is unaccountable, who's prideful and arrogant, and he's in charge of an entire nation or an entire group of people when he's in charge of a business. There's something that happens when a man starts to feel like he's above accountability that with 1.3 million soldiers at his fingertips, we can see the potential for tremendous damage. Guys like Hitler, who started with armies smaller than David's, that six million Jews would be annihilated and countries would be destroyed all because of one man's choices. And God, in his grace, is allowing David to get a wake-up call before he sends 1.3 million people into battle and does something so much worse than this. And God sends a plague on the people of Israel, and 70,000 people start to die. And David fails, number two, to count the compo compound effect of his choices. He fails to consider the compound effect of his choices. And we can see from his life, in order 
to step into who God created us to be, to consider the compound effect of the small choices that we make. Men historically have the ability to disconnect choices from consequences. It's just something innate within us. In fact, we pulled some clips from the internet that will show you this principle and fact right here. Let's watch it together. have it. Notice how there were no women in those clips. <laughs> Something about it. You just, you search the internet for that stuff and like 90% of it is all just guys doing dumb stuff. We, we failed to take into account the compound effect of our choices on a day-to-day basis. And what we see from the life of David is a wake-up call to realize there really is a correlation between your choices and the environment, the fruit of our lives that is Produced. I read this great book last year called The Compound Effect, and it talked about how small choices make a big difference. Small choices over a long period of time make an even bigger difference. One of the examples that is given in the book is of food, and he talks about how one donut a day just seems so small. It seems insignificant, but if you eat one donut a day, 200 calories per day onto your regular diet, you do this for 365 days over the course of next year, that equals 73,000 calories. Now, one body fat or one pound of body fat is 3,500 calories. So you take 73,000 divided by 3,500 calories, and over the next year, by eating one donut a day, you can add 20 pounds of body fat to your, your image. Nobody's going out for Krispy Kreme today after that one. You know, it might be quiet because there's this sobering effect on our choices really do add up over the course of time. Now, the good news is that this compound effect doesn't have to work against us. It can actually work in our favor. And the question for us is, is the compound effect of your choices working for you or against you? And I want us to see and visualize the power and significance of our small decisions and how they can work for us. If you just imagine 30 minutes a day in prayer and Bible study over the course of your life, the long-term effect that that can have on your relationship with God and your relationship with everybody else. Or imagine for those of you who are married, the significance of one night a week to go out on a date with your spouse over the course of time, all that investment. 
For those that have children or have family members that are the age of children, the investment in the lives of the next generation, the impact over the course of time that you can have simply through one hour a week or one time slot a week. Or for those of you who are professionals or you're pursuing your careers to read for 30 minutes a day in your chosen field, the impact, the net effect of making the right choice over a long period of time, there is a ripple effect and there is a compounding effect that grows in our lives when we see the correlation between our choices and the consequences of our choices. But what I think God is helping David understand in this story is that it's not just you that your choices affect. It's not just your life. It's not like we live our lives in a vacuum. We make these choices and it doesn't influence anybody else. So this same compound effect can also work in our favor to influence other people. This last week, I was up in the Santa Teresa, um, in the mountains in the Santa Teresa County Park overlooking the valley, just praying, asking God to give fresh vision to our lives and our church. And I was there looking in an area that has 3 million people in Silicon Valley and thinking about the fact that 90% of the people in our region do not know the message and love of Jesus. They don't know that there's a God for them that stands on their side wanting them to know his heart. And I started thinking about how in the world can we impact 3 million people with this message, 90% who don't know the love of Jesus. And I started thinking about every one of your lives in the compound effect of how many lives every single one of us influence and touch if all of us were to capture a vision of the influence that we can have. In fact, next weekend is like the Super Bowl weekend or the March Madness Final Four of church. It's when we put it all on the line. It's when we celebrate the message that is better than any other message on the planet, that Jesus, God's own son, came from heaven to earth, was crucified, conquered a grave, and when he did, it gives hope and life. It gives peace and joy to anybody who will come. And next week, more people will be open to coming to church than any other weekend of the year. There will be more people who choose to follow Jesus next weekend than any other weekend of the entire year. And we have the unique privilege simply by extending an invitation and bringing somebody to church with us, the compound effect with our friends, with our family members, the coworkers around us, our neighbors, that there literally can be a ripple effect that goes from our lives to the edge of our regions, to the edge of the world, if we will... if we will just embrace the significance of our choices, one conversation, taking that card in your program and inviting one person, sending the link to our website to one person can change somebody's eternity. There can be a ripple effect. My question is, are you considering the compound effect of your choices? David starts to see it. He starts to catch a glimpse of it. In fact, as the story concludes, it says the angel stretches out his hand to destroy Jerusalem The Lord was grieved because of the calamity, and he said, enough, withdraw your hands. David wakes up, and he says, I'm the one who sinned. I'm the one who's done wrong. These people are sheep. What have you done, God? Let your hand fall heavy upon me and my family. I want to bear the consequences, not all of these people. And God says to David, I want you to go and build an altar to make sacrifices upon an altar, and there on that altar, repent and turn back to me. 
David starts walking towards this field in a town. As he's walking to make sacrifices, this man walks up to him and says, David, here's a field. Here's some oxen for you to sacrifice. Go ahead and, and, and do your thing. Build an altar to God. And David says in verse number 25, I want us to notice this, or 24, he says, the king replied, no, I insist on paying you for it. In fact, I will not sacrifice anything to the Lord, my God, any burnt offerings that cost me nothing. David's saying, I'm going to make it right. I'm going to make amends. I'm going to have that conversation. I'm going to repair that relationship that's been broken. I am going to do whatever it takes to make amends for my past. And there he goes up to the altar. He lays his sacrifices down and watch this grand finale of the story. It says, David built an altar, altar to the Lord there, sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. And God intervenes and he says, enough is enough. Relent. It's done. Let me extend my grace and my mercy to my people. And there David in that moment builds an altar and alters the direction of his life and the trajectory of the nation of Israel. And we see from his story that we can also alter our lives at the altar of God, that we can shift and change the direction of our lives. We've been going this direction, but it can change. We don't have to keep heading in the same direction that we've been going. And there was a different altar that God would build, an altar that wouldn't have sheep and oxen laid upon it. The altar that God would build would be a cross, and he would send his son from heaven to earth, and there was a plague that had come upon every single human being, a plague that affects every one of us to our core, the plague of sin and brokenness. And God says, enough is enough. I'm going to send my son to solve this problem of sin once for all. And as Jesus was brutally murdered upon a cross and conquered a grave, there was an altar that was built. And now because of grace, because of mercy, because of an empty tomb, God gives us the privilege, gives us the opportunity for the direction of our lives to be altered to be changed. Where is God asking you to alter the direction of your life? Is it with anger? Is it with that fact that you've been living as a man under yourself and your own selfish interests? Is it in the area of purity? Is there an addiction that God is asking you to overcome? See, the good news is God's grace is available. He is for you and not against you. And he wants to give you the power, the strength to stand. And your family might have been going in a direction for years and generations. You might have a dad that never told you he loved you. You might have a family that never honored the Lord and lived with purity. You might have grown up in an environment that was abusive and always spoke down to you. But what God wants to say to you today is you are chosen. You are my beloved. You are my sons. You are my daughters. And I have a direction for your life. It can be altered by, by my grace. You can stand with my love. You can stand with my, my mercy and you can change. And the compound effect of your life over the course of time can have a subsequent impact on generations for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to come. I can't think of better, any other way to better illustrate this 
than through the life of a guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards has this phenomenal story of how his choices impacted future generations. And I want us to look and compare Jonathan Edwards to a guy by the name of Max Jukes. Let me read this story to you. Jonathan Edwards was born in 1703 in East Windsor, Connecticut. He attended Yale University at the age of 13 and later went on to serve as the president of the College of New Jersey, which is now Princeton. When he was just 20 years old, he wrote a list of personal resolutions. Among them was to ask myself at the end of every day, wherein could I have possibly in any respect done better? In no area was Edward's resolve stronger than in his role as a man, as a husband, and a father. Edwards and his wife, Sarah, had 11 children. God bless them. <laughs> Despite a rigorous work schedule that included rising early at 4.30 a.m. to read and write in his library, extensive travels, and endless administrative meetings, he always made time for his children, for the next generation. Indeed, he committed to spending at least one hour a day with them. Notice the compound effect of his choices. And what if he missed a day because he was traveling? He diligently made up the hour upon his return. Numerous books have been written about Edwards, about his life, his work, and influence on American history and his powerful professional legacy. But the legacy that Edwards would probably be most proud of is his legacy as a father. In fact, the scholar Warfield of Princeton has charted 1,394 known descendants of Edwards. What he found was an incredible testament to Jonathan Edwards. Of his descendants, there are 13 college presidents, 65 college professors, 30 judges, 100 lawyers, 60 physicians, 75 army and navy officers, 100 pastors, 60 authors of prominence, three United States senators, 80 public services agents or service representatives in other capacities, including governors and ministers to foreign countries, and one vice president of the United States. One man, four generations forward. You take that man and you compare and contrast his life to a guy by the name of Max Jukes. In fact, this guy, by the name of Max Jukes, was a contemporary of Edwards. As an adult, he had a drinking problem that kept him from holding a steady job. It also kept him from showing much concern for his wife and children. He would disappear sometimes for days, and he would return drunk. He made little time for loving and instructing his children. The same scholar went and studied Jukes' descendants. What he found further supports this five-generational rule, the compound impact of one life. Warfield was able to trace 540 of Jukes' ancestors. They offered a stunning contrast to Edward's legacy. Of Jukes' known descendants, listen to this, 310 died in poverty. At least 150 were criminals, including seven murders. More than 100 were drunkards, and half of his female descendants ended up as a prostitute. One man, impact of one life. So sobering, isn't it? Your choices matter. You are not just influencing your life. You are influencing generations to come. And my question for you today is, would you let God alter the direction of your life? Would you let his grace and mercy give you the power to stand so that your life, so that your family, so that your place of work can be different. I want to invite the men of South Bay to go ahead and stand. 
with me for just a moment as we wrap up the message together today. And I want to pray over you. I want to encourage you. You know, my boys sometimes will have issues. I know that those of you who have children know the bombardment oftentimes of training and disciplining. And sometimes I feel this internal battle with my boys because I'm disciplining them, but there's this love and there's this compassion. And sometimes from within my son, I can sense this frustration. And one day I'm down in my son's face and I'm looking at him and he's so frustrated, he's so angry. And I'm just trying to talk to him. This is not who you are. This is not who God's created you to be. And I just, I just felt so compelled from God to say, son, I'm for you. I'm not against you. I'm, I'm on your team. I love you. I believe in you. There's, there's nobody you're ever going to find that loves you and believes in you more than I do. And you know, God wants you to hear that today. You might have never had a dad that told you he's for you and he loves you, but you have a heavenly father that is for you, that is on your side, that has leveraged and marshaled all of heaven's resources and sent his only son for you so that you can know that because of grace and because of mercy, it doesn't have to go this way. It can change. And you can one day stand and look children and grandchildren and neighbors and boys from the next generation into the eyes and you can influence people with your life. And my question is, will you let God birth that vision in you? Will you stand strong for what matters most? Will you invest in the lives of others? Will you let God use you to walk with purity, to walk with integrity, that we can be different. We can be men who live lives that are marked with the grace and the mercy and the power of God to live courageously, to fight for our community, to fight for our families, to fight for integrity. There is no limit to what God can do through your life when you start to see yourself the way that he sees you. So I want to pray a prayer over you of God's blessing and his strength to descend upon you in power. Jesus, thank you today that there is no limit to your power. There's no limit to your grace. There's no limit to what you can do through our lives. I pray today that you would help us catch a vision of what our lives can become, that you will help us catch a vision that our lives can be different, that our families can be different. I pray that this series would ignite a passion in our men to stand for you and to stand for what matters most. And by your grace, that we would understand today that it can be different with us, that we would alter the direction of our lives with your help and your power. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our risen Lord. Amen.